Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. Welcome to episode three. This might be difficult today because I have my dog here today. And he is a Australian Shepherd, which tend to be really hyperactive. So you might hear him walking around in the background. Um, Like right now, he's right here up to the mic. Hello, Levi. So, the topic today is creativity, which is one of my favorite topics right now. Um, So, I guess here we go. Let's begin. So, the first section will be about risk-taking and novelty-seeking. So, let's start with this. There is... The concept of familiarity and unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity is almost synonymous with novelty, newness. So familiarity involves information or environments that you already know are safe or unsafe already. The familiar can be explored safely because you already know and can predict the outcomes, presumably, because that's what it means to be familiar, is to already know. The unknown, or the novel, has not yet been determined safe or unsafe. So, it is risky right off the bat. The unknown is how you make discoveries because discovering is about finding new information. So venturing into the unknown risks problems for our survival as a species or individually. We might explore the nighttime where we can't easily see and everything is more unknown than the daytime, and we might encounter predators or something like this. So that's why this episode is called Exploring Darkness. And if you look at just cultural memes throughout history, um, in the Bible there is the um, fruit of knowledge which sort of symbolizes the risk of wanting or the risk of curiosity. There's TV shows like Black Mirror, which show the potential downfalls and dystopic realizations of creative technologies. So there is definitely 
fear centered around it because things can go wrong when we don't know how to predict the outcome of something. But that's how we learn new things. That's how we explore and discover and create new things. We have to take those risks. So one of these dynamics that I think exists in society is a dynamic between the risk averse and risk takers. I think that both of those traits would exist on a gradient or bell curve of sorts. Um, I think that the risk averse would be more dominant just in society, more dominant of a trade in society because of uh, the amount of benefits would be a lot more than what creativity or exploration and risk-taking offers because safety matters more than progress. I think that there are archetypes in our society that are geared towards taking those risks for society, for the benefit of society. I think the reason it gets these archetypes maybe stigmatized would be because there are benefits to fearing change, fearing the unknown, that I think, for example, in the case of shows like Black Mirror, where they, the, uh, where people might come up with disastrous technologies. So I think with schizophrenia, they are the mind explorers. And this could apply to probably all of them. I think there are major differences between schizophrenics and ADHD and bipolars. ADHD has correlations with bipolar disorder at specifically the genetics that, in, that deal with D4 dopamine receptors. This will be explained later on towards the end. I think that schizophrenics are similar. They have similar executive functioning problems and attention, basically attention, short-term memory issues that ADHD people have. But I think there is more fear in the schizophrenics. They seem to be the ones that would actually scream out about the risks of something Black Mirror-esque before it happens, trying to warn us possibly but they also seem capable of imagining such worlds as well. So perhaps they do not advocate or desire for change, but they still have some kind of mental risk-taking which might allow them to come to conclusions that are similar to the ADHD and bipolar types, possibly. Um, I don't know about that entirely. I think the other possibility is that schizophrenics are 
only diagnosed as schizophrenic if they are afraid. So it might not be that they are afraid inherently, but that the ones that lose their confidence and security tend to go crazy, it could be. That's probably why it's not entirely genetically determined. You have a genetic predisposition that gets triggered by something. And I think if we look at the idea of thinking theories, that that is a form of creativity. I think it is mental exploration when you think of hypothetical things. You are sort of creating scenarios and testing them and going beyond the kind of educational dogmatic systems that we are all sort of expected to follow. And I think that uh, with something like schizophrenia, when they come up with theories, I, I, th I think theories are a core aspect of what schizophrenia is, at least paranoid schizophrenia, and probably a few other types. I think that... Um, I think the problem is more that people are generally not educated, and when you start making theories based on very little evidence that you tend to be very wrong about those theories. So for example, consider this. Einstein had traits of schizophrenia physically. His brain, uh, his frontal lobes were shrinking and his corpus callosum were, was enlarged, for example, and these are traits that are associated with schizophrenics. And he was clearly creative. And there is also Isaac Newton, who was severely schizophrenic, I would argue. There was some stuff I've read about him... Uh, thinking that there is basically encrypted messages in the Bible directed towards him specifically, and that he was some kind of prophetic figure of sorts. He also practiced alchemy and drank liquid mercury to enhance his cognition, supposedly. But those two, I've heard, were more product of the intellectual culture of the time, and it was not just him doing that. But I think that he still traveled into the kind of mental outreaches of sorts. So I think the problem with a lot of schizophrenics is when they are not educated, and I would say that a massive majority of society is not educated enough to think up theories. So if you took someone like Einstein or Isaac Newton and placed them in a church in some kind of rural area of the world and they had no access to the internet and no books, 
I think the kind of ideas they form would be very misguided. And with that in mind, it's also possible that uh, 1,000 years from now, most of the ideas we think are good today will be considered borderline delusional, like string theory, for example, might be laughable in the future and be considered some kind of physics delusion of sorts. But that might only be the case if physics became common knowledge. I don't know. That gets weird. So I think the overlap of the high degree of low education among society would mean that there's also a high degree of low education or low information schizophrenics, as some people have been saying on the internet lately, the low info fool. So I think that that is very common and that that definitely affects the outcome of such disorders. So here's another idea. I think that there is a form of learning through trial and error, and that our academia is very much against this for the most part. They punish error, which in some ways disincentivizes learning from trial and error. This is why I think ADHD and probably the other two creative disorders I've mentioned, bipolar and schizophrenia, might get kind of outcast in the academic systems. And largely, these academic systems, education systems, rely on a form of dogmatic teaching for efficiency. They expect you to copy uh, information rather than understand explanation or even seek out one's own explanation through trial and error. So I think there is... So for, for example, with bipolar and schizophrenia, grandiosity and narcissistic traits are common. I think that is partially due to the stigma to going away from basically consensus of knowledge. So we, we could already see how if one is exploring different theories and hypotheticals that they will stray off the consensus path. And I think that the majority of people might stick towards some kind of consensus knowledge base, like whatever their study is, they might just stick to the authority positions, which isn't bad. I think that's critical for society to develop, and it's very important. But I think that the disapproval when someone leaves that standard education um, path, I suppose, kind of causes 
grandiosity and narcissism because they might not be like the people with bipolar and schizophrenia might not be logically refuted because people don't really do that. People don't logically refute each other. Instead, they appeal to authority. So this kind of fallacious reasoning for why the schizophrenics shouldn't have their ideas would kind of make them resent other people because they don't find a flaw in their own thinking. I've personally had experience with this, but I wouldn't necessarily say that all my thoughts are thoughts in that way are delusional or anything like that. Like this, this very idea I'm presenting here is not necessarily stuff I've learned and I'm not really regurgitating other people's ideas, though I'm not claiming these ideas are unique even. I am naive to whether they are or aren't. But if I was being criticized right now for all these ideas, for example, I might become resistant unless people can actually make a strong case for why. And I think it becomes more problematic when attention and working memory disorders are related to the condition because they, their ability to prove their idea to other people will be inhibited and they will be slowed down and stuff. So I think the kind of narcissism, like if you think of narcissism as a response to being criticized for your identity or whatever you hold closely to yourself, which I think the creative types will definitely hold their ideas closer than a person that is uh, just merely regurgitating their um, what an authority has told them because it's not their idea, it's the authority's idea. So I think there is a rational explanation for why grandiosity and narcissistic traits might relate to creativity. So another thing to consider about this narcissistic problem is that they will be told over and over throughout the course of their lives that they are wrong about various things. And I think oftentimes they will actually later find out they were correct. For example, as a child, they might realize something ahead of their class and then be made fun of for not following what the class said is true. And then say like two years later, they found out they were right about it. They would feel validated and also angry that people distrusted them. And I think over time, there's a kind of reinforcement that will cause them to become narcissistic. With the narcissism, I think it also comes with not only narcissism, but as you are told you are wrong so much, I think that makes you basically try to use less ethical tactics to convincing people 
to trust your non-consensus viewpoints. For example, you would see, uh, for, for example, in politics, we could say that it's very common for one to um, promote their ideas with more confidence than they actually have because the population will respond to confidence and trust you in your confidence. And there's a reason for that. Hey, that will be explored in a little bit. I think that this same tactic will be used by schizophrenics often. And I think the more they do it, they essentially start to believe in that confidence. The confidence is necessary to get any kind of trust from others, likely. And then as you keep repeatedly engaging with that tactic of basically lying and saying that your idea is more sound than it is, that people will... Um, It'll slowly evolve into a delusion, essentially. So, the next topic is going to be Explorer and Guardian Dynamic. So this is essentially what I think is an evolutionary... Well, not what I think. What I've learned is an evolutionary trait or trend in many animals that occurs between the child and the parent creatures. In this dynamic, the child is the explorer and the parent is the guardian. Children are often seen as more creative, explorative, and perhaps risky. I'm not sure if that is solid, but I think when you think of it rationally, that if a child knows nothing, then that means they must be risk-taking and novelty-seeking, or else if they cling to their bubble of familiarity, they would not learn anything. So I think it's necessary to have this kind of phase in life, and then as you age, you become more close-minded and protective and defensive against novelty because risk-taking becomes less appealing. So, at 12 months, it's known that babies begin showing fear of novel stimulation. I think that it could be not just that they begin to show fear, of novelty. It's not that it just develops by some weird mechanic of genetic um, kind of development or something, but more that um, everything is novel at first, so you can't really fear it, but then as you become more familiar with the world, you start to feel a kind of comfort in the familiarity so that when you're exposed to novelty and you cycle between familiarity and novelty, it kind of promotes this discomfort when you experience novelty. 
until eventually, as an adult, perhaps novelty is rare enough that it's uncomfortable very often, and then you begin to avoid it. Not sure if that's true, but that's what I think. So there's this concept of awe. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it talks about how novelty and fear are both associated with awe, and how awe, the state of awe, can lead to either euphoria or even PTSD, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I think basically with the child and parent dynamic that the naive child will trust the adult who has seemingly experienced all of what the naive child considers as unfamiliar and the adult has already familiarized to those stimuli with the aid of the past guardians that they've had. Now, the thing that's interesting here is that I think a... Um, I don't know if the child would be able to recognize that the adult has gone through everything, obviously. That's not really... I don't even know if that's possible. So instead, I think this is why we trust an authoritative confidence in others, and that is the basis for why people can be politically manipulated by people who lie about being more confident than they are. Because people will see your sense of calmness and confidence as a sign that you aren't afraid of looking stupid, you're not afraid that you're wrong, you are basically expressing your own security, which makes others trust that you actually are secure. So next, this next section will be pattern recognition and exploration. This is one of my favorites. So we could say that exploring is the concept of finding new paths and solutions to the same problem or even to seek out new problems altogether. So try out this thought experiment. Imagine that you're traveling from your home to your work and you take the same path every day. Now let's ignore the fact that you might be daydreaming and just pretend that you are aware of your senses as you drive this path every day. Now we know that Repeated exposure will help us memorize the contents that are repeatedly being exposed to us. So this would end up leading to you memorizing the details of this path to work. Now imagine that instead of doing that, you took a new path every single day. So clearly you're not being exposed to the same information, it would seem, at face value. But consider that there is a lot of repetition throughout life. There's a lot of repetition about how streets are designed, for example. 
And so this, with repeated exposure to random details, you will memorize essentially patterns between different novel experiences. And I think that this form of memorizing is essentially pattern recognition. It is the basis of pattern recognition, whereas the other form where you take the same path every day to work would be detail-oriented perception, I suppose. So I think there's a few things that are different. So of course we know that when we take the same path every day, we will tend to zone out out of boredom or we sort of go on autopilot because we know the path so well. Now, when you travel somewhere new and take new paths, you cannot easily just go on autopilot. Perhaps with Google uh, Maps you could, right? But let's say that's not a factor. So we could see that it uh, exploring a novel path can force you into a more conscious state. And I think that this essentially habituates consciousness instead of habituating the automatic state. I think there is a kind of comfort in the automatic state. We become free to think whatever we want, which is when we dissociate and daydream. But in the non-automatic state, I think it forces us to be more consciously aware of our surroundings. And as previously mentioned, it helps you develop a pattern recognition. So Let's see. I think that novelty seeking is essentially the same as getting bored of taking the same path every day. And things like ADHD are correlated with novelty seeking as well as bipolar. And I'm not sure that schizophrenia is associated with novelty-seeking, but they do have correlate. I mean, there's theories that focus on dopamine D2 receptors, which are implicated in processing novel information. So if you've ever heard of Carl Jung's theories about archetypes. He mentions intuitives and sensors, which are kind of like those who are noticing patterns versus those who notice details. And I think that the intuitives would be the people who are novelty-seeking in this case then, and recognizing patterns, whereas the sensors would be what I would uh, consider as detail-oriented. I think risk-taking is inherently associated with novelty-seeking, 
And I think that the detail-oriented types will be what I will title as security seekers as opposed to novelty seekers. So here comes an interesting idea. Let's. This is a hypothesis of mine. Let's say that um, schizophrenia is mental exploration as opposed to maybe external exploration or maybe some other form of exploration. Maybe there's some kind of difference there. Let's say that the reason that pruning occurs, meant by neuronal pruning occurs in schizophrenia might be due to essentially um, forming many patterns. So like, take the example of taking a different path every day. You would not memorize the details of those paths. And I think it is those details that are being pruned from your mind because of non-use. You are not repeating them enough to have them stay. And I think a lot of the psychotic symptoms result from this kind of novel thought exploration. And I think this is how abstraction occurs as well, because you will begin to form uh, patterns in your mind in the same way that you might recognize patterns while driving down novel streets. For example, I should have mentioned this earlier, an example of how a pattern might be found is you may notice that every time you encounter a stop sign with certain other traits, that it tends to lead to dead ends or something like that. So then you can skip those stop sign pathways knowing that you will reach a dead end. So you essentially will eventually be able to predict um, what the patterns lead to so that you don't need to test them yourself. And here's another idea that I have, another hypothesis. I wonder if there could be some sort of psychological axis for which a solution with a sufficient level of efficiency causes one to stop seeking novel solutions. So what I mean by this is that if you look at the case of drug addiction, it provides a reward or solution that is so efficient that I think you get to a point where you no longer seek out any other kind of solution. So it could be that there is a um, axis for which personality types would um, be more prone to basically settling down and deciding that this is good enough. And I think with the security seekers, they essentially have a lower um, threshold of that trait where they decide that they suddenly don't want to find something new. And this is interesting because it, um, it can explain addiction and why it's so repetitious and why a lot of reward-seeking habits are repetitious. It can explain why 
dopamine D2 receptors downregulate during states of addiction. And um, there's a lot to it, but we're going to move on now to the perception and cognition aspects of this creativity theory. There's something called latent inhibition, where it's described as essentially um, filtering out irrelevant information. And I think this has more to do with a uh, difference in how you use your attention, which I will explain later in pharmacological terms. So the idea here is that there are people with low latent inhibition that can't filter out what they call irrelevant information, and they treat what they say is familiar stimuli as being novel. It's associated with this low latent inhibition is associated to intuitive thinking, creativity, psychosis, high levels of dopamine in the ventral tegmental area of the brain, and also ADHD. So I think it gets more interesting because the idea that there is arbitrary information is, I think, an assumption made by people who are being centric to their own perspectives because clearly these people end up having pattern recognition and finding patterns where other people don't. And I think that it's not arbitrary because it's useful. So I think it's a difference in attention. And let's see. So here comes another interesting thing. I have a theory that I'll talk about eventually that's not fully developed about optical illusions. And schizophrenics experience less optical illusions than the normal population. And here is my hypothesis on this topic. Optical illusions are, in essence, assumed familiarity of a stimuli that is predictively wrong. So by that I mean you see a perception and assume, or your brain assumes that it looks like something, but then it actually doesn't look like that, and that's what causes this kind of dissonance and error. And I think it's because you're making assumptions about, um, I don't know. So I think forming illusions more rapidly may relate to what latent inhibition is, whereas low latent inhibition may correlate with a lack of illusions, which makes sense since psychosis is related. And there's a correlation with psychosis and lower optical illusions, and a correlation with low latent inhibition and psychosis. So, um, the automatic state that I've mentioned, like autopilot while you're driving, is in some sense a kind of illusional awareness. You make assumptions that everything is familiar when it may not be. And 
here's where things get interesting. Um, this is going to go a little bit into pharmacological explanations right now. I, I would say that a case could be made that all illusions, both optical and cognitive, are a form of memory, and they form for processing to become more efficient. Using memory constructs to form perceptions of familiar and common images we are exposed to, such as faces, the corners of rooms, and three-dimensional data, would allow for faster processing and less time spent on deciphering data as if it were novel. Because if you assume, for example, that, um, that there is a... Uh, what is it called? It's called the inverted mask illusion, where you have a mask that is convex. Oh no, concave. I don't remember which one right now, the correct terminology. But it is basically inverted, so it's not facing towards you, but it tricks your mind into seeing it as if it were facing you. If you check out my blog, there is a video of this. And they found that schizophrenics don't really experience that illusion. They see it how it actually is. And I think the idea here is that we assume that faces would never be um, inverted like that, of course. So if it were novel or unfamiliar, we might not know whether it were inverted or not. That's an assumption, and I think our brain is essentially forming a lot of assumptions about everything constantly, so that we are in a sort of world of illusions that help us more quickly process things so that we don't have to like question every detail. We don't have to question if that face is actually inverted or not, because why would that be real? Why? That seems unlikely. So to continue, the motion after effect illusion that occurs when staring at a source of consistent emotion, where eventually when you turn your um, gaze towards a static image, the perception of motion continues after the stimuli has ceased. Um, this would show that the illusion is developed via exposure to the stimuli. So that kind of goes back to the familiarity thing. And this also makes sense of why certain illusions are culturally dependent. For example, certain tribes that don't have exposure to square houses do not see a corner of the room, which is like a set of three lines all meeting at a point. They do not see that as a corner if you draw it on paper. They see it as three lines instead. So, I think illusions are, in some sense, a memory-based abstraction that is created for efficiency. And it occurs by exposure to repeating stimuli. Um, there is... Um, one of the theories for schizophrenia is that their glutamate NMDA receptors are in hypofunctionality. And 
With this, there are drugs that block that receptor and produce psychotic effects. And I think that if you look at drugs like psychedelics, which promote NMDA activity, it's almost in the sense of being an agonist instead of an antagonist, it seems to form things like the um, motion after effect much more quickly than you would normally experience it. it seems to enhance the speed at which you form illusions by repetition and familiarity, so probably it enhances memory and learning as well. Um, that I can get into in a different podcast. I'm not going to dwell too much on that. If you disagree with me, you can comment on this or email me or something. So, um, like breathing walls, for example, uh, it could be that your breathing is actually producing emotion after effects very, very acutely and very quickly. So, let's see. Low latent inhibition could probably be explained by the mechanics of the D2 dopamine receptor. And here it gets interesting because ADHD is linked to D4 dopamine receptors, which form connections that are known as heteromers with D2 receptors. So there's that kind of distant link between ADHD and... Sorry, my dog barked. Sorry about that. As I was saying, ADHD is linked to D4 dopamine receptors, and these form connections with D2 receptors, which might explain why there is an overlap with attention problems. The attention problems... Um, oh, so another thing that's interesting is that um, both of these receptors are inhibitory dopamine receptors, which is in contrast to the norm, or not the norm, but it is more common to find stimulatory dopamine receptors, such as D1 dopamine receptors. So, let's see. Hopefully you are still following. This might get pretty intense. We're almost at the end here of my ideas on this. So here is how I think the D2 receptor causes a difference, a difference in how we use our attention, both perceptually and cognitively. Or it could even be that D4 or D2, maybe they independently affect either perception or um, cognitive attention. By cognitive attention, I just mean um, attention to your internal thoughts, so like keeping your train of th thought while you're speaking, for example. But I honestly don't think they're um, exclusive to each other. I think they overlap. I think our attention can either be towards the environment or internally, and I think it's the same thing almost. So let's consider that many 
of the dopamine receptors, especially D1 receptors, um, they, they, what they basically do is dopamine binds to it on the neuron, and this causes dopamine to be released into the synapse, which is an empty space between neurons, and it sends it to the next neuron in line. So when you consider that we would form kind of habits based on rewards and habits in daily life and kind of automate ourselves, I think this is essentially the same thing as being conditioned like Pavlov's dogs. So when we are conditioned, there's a kind of autopilot state where it becomes increasingly easier to um, do those behaviors because they're just repetitious and automated. Learning gets enhanced because of the familiarity, as previously mentioned. And so D2 receptors are interesting because they, D2SH receptors, I should say, the autoreceptor. I am probably using too many terms for a lot of the general audience. I'm sorry for this. But basically, there's a form of D2 receptor that inhibits um, that dopamine release to the next neuron. And I think the function of this would be that whatever habitual pathways in your brain that exist would be shut off, and it would favor tangential and secondary pathways instead. And as you increase dopamine, there would be more and more of a preference for this because more of these D2 receptors would inevitably be activated because of the higher likelihood because of the increased amount of dopamine. So say in your daily life that dopamine is regulated, the levels are regulated by your habits pretty consistently and there's not that much activity of D2 receptors except the rare occasions. So uh, I think what happens is that a novel situation or stimuli will cause a burst of dopamine that makes it much more likely to activate those D2 receptors and shut down the linear um, habitual pathways that you use and essentially turn off the motivation towards the common addictive goals in some sense, the common habits that you have in everyday life. And um, this part maybe gets a little bit more complicated. Let's see. No, I'm going to skip that, actually. Okay, so... Um, hmm, I'm trying to find a way to explain this in the best way possible. So here, here's where I could make it more understandable. There's something called the default mode network, which is the, basically just the network of neurons that is most activated in daily life. It is like the default of your mind that, and this uh, default mode network is correlated with depression and 
lots of different things. Um, psychedelics disrupt the default mode network and cause a more chaotic um, neuronal pattern and more interconnected activity between different regions and stuff like this. Um, so the default mode network, I think, is those dopamine pathways that are habituated. And I think the function of the D2 receptor is to dissolve this and um, make it easier to learn novel information. And what's interesting is that the D2 receptor has one of those heteromer connections with um, the main psychedelic receptor that causes all of the different psychedelic effects of the drugs. And that receptor connects to another heteromer connection with um, a metabotropic glutamate receptor. And glutamate is essentially um, perception and awareness of stimuli. So, for example, when you block uh, glutamate, it causes anesthesia, it causes psychotic effects, it causes dissociation, it causes memory loss, since glutamate receptors deal with memory and perception. And psychedelics have a mechanism that increases glutamate, and I think that what psychedelics do is artificially trigger uh, a novelty response, and that normally the purpose of the dopamine receptor that's inhibitory is to basically scatter away all the different linear paths and open your mind as well as enhance your perception of the external world to make it easier to um, assimilate with the new information. And so I think that that's why there's connections with psychedelics and creativity. I think that ADHD, schizophrenia, and bipolar have kind of loose connections towards this path of, um, or this um, mechanism of novelty. So for now, this is pretty much it. I'm going to stop here. I hope this was pretty enjoyable. Um, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything. So tell me, what do you think about the darkness? Do you want to explore the unknown or do you fear it? Are you more cautious or more curious? So let me know and um, you should join my Discord channel if you have any interest in talking with me and talking with others who have a shared interest in um, topics such as this. And so today I'm going to leave you with this song that is the most novel song that I have created, I would say. It's the most weird, obscure sounding track. It's called Psychic Plants. And that kind of has some relevance because it could be psychedelic plants. But the actual meaning behind that was because of I was reading some weird basically pseudoscience studies about the potential for telepathic plants and stuff like that. That's kind of far out and absurd. Well, so I hope you enjoy this track and I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I'll catch you guys next time.
Thank <laughs> you.